The scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Mark, chapter 13, verses 1 through 8, and also verses 24 to 37. Listen now for the word of the Lord. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be one left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will, be, they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learns its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father, Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Pray with me. Gracious God, thank you for this day that you have made. And now once more we ask in the hearing of your word, you would speak to us and transform us from the inside out. Challenge us and give us hope. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. So last week, Jesus pointed out a widow who gave her everything, literally everything, her very life, to the lost cause of the broken temple system. But as we just heard, it doesn't appear that Jesus' disciples noticed her or gave her any attention. They completely ignored her desperate plight. Instead, as they leave the temple, one of his disciples remarked, Look, teacher, what great stones and what wonderful buildings. I imagine it's something like failing to notice the homeless while looking at something like the Empire State Building in New York. To be fair, 
the temple and the temple complex with its columns and colonnades and courts was an impressive sight. Some of the stones were so massive, weighing more than 100 tons. By comparison, the stones in the Great Pyramid of Giza weighed only two and a half tons or so. Josephus, the first century historian, describes it like this. Now the outward face of the temple was covered all over with plates of gold of great weight. And at the first rising of the sun, reflected back a very fiery splendor and made those who forced themselves to look upon it to turn their eyes away just as they would have done with the sun's own ray. But this temple appeared to strangers when they were coming in at a distance like a mountain covered with snow. For as to those parts of it that were not gilt, they were exceeding white. Even allowing here for some hyperbole, it would have been a magnificent structure to behold. It would have been the grandest structure for miles and miles and miles. But Jesus says, do you see these great buildings? There will not be here one stone left upon another that will not be thrown down. The temple may have looked beautiful, perhaps even indestructible, but in previous generations, we know that it had been raised by the Babylonians, desecrated by the Greeks, and it was now undergoing a reconstruction that was begun under King Herod. So given that history and living now under Roman occupation, the disciples knew that its destruction was a real possibility. And so they understandably ask, when is this going to happen? Not if, but when is this going to happen? And what are some warning signs so that we can be ready? And in response, Jesus gives this his longest uninterrupted teaching in the Gospel of Mark, the entire 13th chapter, half of which we skipped in our reading this morning. And he does this notably after sitting down opposite the temple on the Mount of Olives. This is more than just a spatial reference. It is theological positioning. Because remember, while in the temple, Jesus had cleansed it of its exploitative commerce by overturning the moneylenders' tables. He had refuted and silenced the corrupt theological stances of the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Herodians. And he had exposed the death-dealing hypocrisy of the scribes of the treasury system that had robbed widows instead of supporting them. So now, just as he had sat opposite the treasury and condemning that system against the widows, so he now sits opposite the temple that is in opposition to the temple grounds. In doing so, Jesus is reenacting the vision of the prophet Ezekiel, where the glory of God leaves the temple and rests on the Mount of Olives. And at the end of the Gospel of Mark, the curtain of the temple will be torn in two as a final judgment against the temple and its system. Jesus says the signs of this impending destruction will be clear. It will be as obvious as the leaves on a fig tree signal the coming of summer. It will be as obvious as Easter is near when you go to the grocery stores and all you see are chocolate eggs and Easter bunnies. Now most scholars believe that the Gospel of Mark was written in the 60s 
during the turbulent era of the Jewish uprising and rebellion against the Roman Empire. And so Jesus is warning here against false messiahs and the rumors of war and famine and persecutions and so on would have meant something extra, particularly meaningful to that first generation of disciples. And Jesus here is borrowing language from the prophets like Jeremiah and others, warning against this deceptive talk which they would hear that the temple would be spared he warns against false visions of victories over Rome that would be given by zealots as a sign of God's intervention. He warns against the false promises of a renewed Davidic kingdom on earth and would-be messiahs in the years to come. Instead, he tells his disciples, when you see these signs, run away, get out of there, flee. These words of Jesus will find their immediate fulfillment just a few years after the gospel is written, in the year 70, we know that the Roman armies of Titus marched into Jerusalem, raised the temple, and crucified thousands of Jews. But Jesus is also looking further ahead. He is reassuring his disciples here that destruction and persecution and death will not be the last words. He's telling his disciples that the end of the world as you know it is not the end of the world as God knows it. Everything that you know is going to be wiped away, but that is not the end. It is a reminder that when the foundations of your world are shaken and broken, whether that foundation is a temple, or for you maybe it's your careers, your family, your health, whatever that is, Jesus is telling us that that is not the end. So what many people read here as a scary, apocalyptic description of the end of the world is actually given as a word of hope. We skipped all the warnings in verses 19, 9 through 23, but after all the signs of the coming destruction of the temple, Jesus changes the tone beginning with verse 24, which we heard. The key is this cold word, in those days. In those days, in those days are the words of the Hebrew prophets signifying the end of the age when God will intervene directly in human history to fulfill all his promises. God's appearance will shake up all of creation. But in those days, after that tribulation, after all the destruction of the temple and so on, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from the heavens and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. It sounds terrible, right? The prophets Isaiah and Joel had used nearly identical descriptions to describe that final day in those days. Now, whether we take these words literally or we take them poetically, we have to at least understand them symbolically and theologically. The extinguishing of these celestial lights speaks more to a theological and spiritual reality than it does to an astronomical one. That is, it is to say that all earthly powers and lights will be turned down, but behind the light of the sun is a greater light, a greater power, a new light. Up to this point, Jesus has been using the second person pronoun, you, in addressing his immediate disciples. But beginning with verse 26, he says, they will see the Son of Man, suggesting a future generation. 
And the chapter ends with Jesus as if he's breaking the fourth wall and addressing us today, clearly here. He says, and I say to you, that is to the disciples that were there, I say to all, that's us, I say to all, stay awake. That's his word, stay awake. In other words, Jesus is no longer talking about the immediate destruction of the temple. He's giving us this this panoramic view of history. The sun and moon will be darkened. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Again, it sounds frightening, as frightening signs to some. But for us, but for us, they are the signal that deliverance is near. It is then that the Son of Man will return in power and glory and send out his angels to gather the elect from the four corners of the earth. After all the false signs of natural disasters and persecutions, family betrayals, imperial violence, the coming of the Son of Man is not about further judgment and destruction, but about salvation and redemption. Birth pains will give rise to a birth and new life and new creation. And we shall be gathered from the ends of the earth to set at table in the kingdom of God. Jesus is not here trying to scare his disciples straight. This is not the kind of horrifying end of the world scenario that many of us have perhaps imagined or the kind of Hollywood and certain segments of Christianity have pushed. Jesus is giving here hope for a community that is being severely persecuted and facing imminent destruction of the world as they have conceived it. Jesus is saying, no matter what the rest you're living under, no matter the unbearable upheavals in your world, no matter the persecutions that you will encounter, the Son of Man will return. He will return in power and glory, and he will gather his elect from the ends of the earth. That's the hope. Listen to the vision John has in the book of Revelation. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The destruction of the temple and even cosmological collapse is okay. Because in that day, in the new earth and the new heavens, there will be no need for the temple or for the sun. And Jesus here says that you have some tough days ahead, but be reassured, I will come again in power and glory. Now, unlike the days leading up to the destruction of the temple, there will be no warning for that final day. Jesus' second parable, the parable of the man, the master of the house going on a journey, emphasizes this point. He will return, but no one, Jesus says, no one, not even Jesus himself, knows the day or the hour of that day. You would think that after such a clear statement, that that matter would be forever settled. But don't you still regularly hear Christians making predictions 
about when Jesus might return. Every time there's a war or some major natural earthquake or disaster, some Christian somewhere claims to have uncovered or unlocked one more scriptural reference or key to get a date that they are now very confident that this is the day of the rapture or the return of Jesus Christ. We get one more prediction about that day. In my preparations this week, I happened upon a website called the Rapture Index. I'm not recommending it. The site says that its index is like, quote, a Dow Jones industrial average of end time activity. That it is a prophetic speedometer. The higher the number, the faster we're moving towards the occurrence of pre-tribulation rapture. The index is based on 45 end time predictive topics such as floods, earthquakes, famines, anti-Semitism, interest rates, inflation, liberalism, globalism, and ecumenism, and so on. Each topic is then rated on a scale of one to five. And so the more reports there are of floods, the higher rates of inflation and interest rates and so on, the higher that index number becomes and the faster we're moving toward the end or toward the occurrence, as they say, of the pre-tribulation rapture. In case you're wondering, as of March 20th, 2023, the index was at 185 out of a possible 225. On the sidebar, it says that any number above 160, fasten your seatbelts. <laughs> so there you have it. You could also browse through various Wikipedia pages devoted to listing the dates that have been proposed for thousands of years about the end of the world. And this will not come as a surprise to you, but almost all of them were wrong. There's still a few dates that have not yet been proven wrong because those dates have not yet passed. There's a couple now predicting the end of the world in 2026 and 2028. So we have a few more we have to check off the list. I don't know about you, but over the years, I know that I have heard my share of preachers, several of whom I have greatly admired, who said that they were certain that they would see the return of Christ in their lifetime. I mean, they really believed it. And whenever anyone would point out that Jesus says, hey, you know, Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour, they would counter by saying that, well, Jesus didn't say that you couldn't know the week or the month or the year, which, of course, entirely misses the point that Jesus is making here. The great irony, the sad great irony, is that Christians over the centuries have taken these words of Jesus to speculate about when to unravel the mysteries and the signs of the end times when in fact Jesus is doing just the opposite. His entire point here, this entire discourse is given so that we do not get caught up in this eschatological speculation. Instead of going down this, this rabbit hole and wallowing in the trivial and the, the ridiculousness of speculating about the when, Jesus is calling us to pay attention to something else, to here and now. Just as he said last week, to pay attention to the widow. Don't, don't look at all the rich people tossing. Their, look at the widow who is suffering and dying. He's calling us to pay attention, not to the signs of the end times, but to be awake, to be alert to something else that's going on right now. The disciples want to know when. 
to speculate, to look at all the spectacle, the beautiful buildings and everything else, the signs. But Jesus says, no. You can't know. Don't even bother with I don't even know. I don't want you to be focused on the question of when. I want you to ask the question, how? I want you to ask, how do I live here and now as I await the coming of the Son of Man? That is a question that is not asked, but it is a question to which Jesus applies an answer. What I say to you, I say to all, to all of us, stay awake. Stay awake. Now, I know today that the word awake carries a lot of heavy baggage because of its cousin, woke. But Jesus' command here to stay awake comes from this parable, specifically about the dangers of falling asleep on the job. In the parable, Jesus says this, it is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you don't know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, midnight, when the rooster crows, which is three, three, three in the morning, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. In the parable, each servant is given work for which he or she is responsible. And it happens that the job of the doorkeeper is to stay awake through the four watches of the night. The point isn't that everyone is being commanded to forego sleep for an indefinite period of time and stay awake and be anxious and be sleep deprived all the time. Presumably the doorkeeper too will sleep at some point when he's not on watch. So what this means for us, I think here, the parable is teaching us that the master's servants are put in charge and they're given work. If your job is that of a doorkeeper, then yes, you need to stay awake during the night. But if your job is to make dinner, then you just make sure that dinner is ready on time. If your job is to take care of the garden, you make sure that the plants are watered. Whatever you have been put in charge of, whatever calling, whatever tasks, whatever jobs that the master has given you, that particular task you have to be responsible for. It may not be glamorous, it may not be as interesting as looking at beautiful buildings or trying to puzzle out clues to some mystery. But faithful servanthood is what we're being called to as we await the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we live in this time. Let me close with this. Jesus says, therefore, stay awake because you don't know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. He calls for wakefulness during the four watches of the night that the Romans used to post their guards at 9 p.m., midnight, 3 a.m., and 6 a.m. And in the next chapter, in the 14th chapter and the beginning of the 15th, these are the four times that the disciples will fail to stay awake. They will fail to be faithful. In Mark 14, 17, we read, when it was evening, so here's the first marker, when it was evening, he went with the 12 disciples to eat the Last Supper, and in that evening meal, Jesus said, one of you will betray me. And Judas fails, right, to keep faithfulness. Mark 14, 32, some of the disciples go to the Garden of Gethsemane with 
Jesus in the middle of the night at midnight, presumably. And even though Jesus tells them the same word repeatedly, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake with me, the disciples fall asleep. They literally fall asleep in the middle of that prayer meeting. And then in Mark 14, 72, Jesus had told Peter what was going to happen. And still, Peter denies Jesus three times and he hears the rooster crow. And then in Mark 15, 1, we read, As soon as it was morning, the Jewish council held a meeting to condemn Jesus and not one of his disciples is present. So in the evening at midnight, when the rooster crows and in the morning, they have failed to stay awake. Despite this warning, despite all the warning, they failed and failed and failed. Mark has framed his narrative around Jesus' words, his exhortation to his disciples to stay awake, to be alert, and they cannot. At each of the four watches of the night that Jesus has named, his disciples have failed him. Even with the repeated warning, the disciples will falter. They will fail to be faithful. They cannot keep awake. That's our story too, isn't it? But Jesus here, he's not trying to make us feel guilty for failing to be faithful. And here's where I think Jesus is trying to tell us something else. In the parable, Jesus says, stay awake because you don't know when the master will return. Now, what do we suppose the master will do when he returns? Did you assume that the master would get angry and punish his servant, kick out the doorkeeper? That's what we would expect, right? He has a right to do that. Maybe if we're in that situation, that's what we would do. But Jesus doesn't say that. He leaves it open. He just asks the question. And remember what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. The disciples fell asleep, not once, not twice, three times they fell asleep. They fell asleep when Jesus asked them directly in that moment. This is not some, you know, sermon they heard years ago. In that very hour, Jesus said, please stay awake with me. And they fell asleep three times. So what did Jesus do? Did he tell them, go back to fishing? You guys, you guys are terrible at being disciples. Forget it. Was he so angry and disappointed with them that he condemned them to hell and the eternal fires of damnation for all time? No. He did not. He woke them up and he kept encouraging them to stay awake. And not only that, more incredibly, he still went to the cross for them. He still went to the cross for them and for the rest of us who regularly fail in our faithfulness. Even for sleepy disciples, there is always hope because of the love of God and the faithfulness of Jesus. You know, this very morning, God gave me a, a great reminder. You know, before service, I get to uh, teach a confirmation class. And this morning, one of the students slept almost the entire class. <laughs> Whatever delusions I ever had about being a good teacher, it's gone. Did I kick him out of, uh, you can't take this class anymore? 
over the years, we've had, I don't want to name names here, but we've had people who are now elders. When they were a little younger, and even now occasionally, you know, they slept a lot during the service. And I saw a couple of you dozing off. I can see. I can see. What does that mean? Jesus exhorts us to a life of faithfulness, not with the threat of destruction, but with the joyful promise that the Son of Man, the one who will die for our sins, will return again in glory and in power, and he will gather the elect. He will gather us. He will gather us. And just as Peter here and the other disciples experienced this apocalyptic apocalyptic moment, this moment of revelation in which they saw their inability to stay awake. I know we all have had similar moments when we have failed to stay awake to keep faith. And in those moments, we might be tempted to quit, to walk away from the faith, to be lazy, or to shirk our responsibilities. But Jesus says to us, stay awake. And then again, stay awake. And still again, stay awake. Today, stay awake. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word. And help us, God, to live in these times, whatever these times may be, whatever these times may bring. Sometimes I know, Lord, that the world seems like it's just, just collapsing all around us. Help us to keep faith. And to know that history and the world is still in your loving hands. Help us look forward to the day when you will come in glory and in power to gather the elect from the ends of the world. And in that waiting, help us to keep faith, to be alert, to stay awake. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.